There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Michael Martin. Michael is the Data and Analytics Global Transformational Manager at Google. He's a full-time MBA class of 2009, and he is a staunch supporter of mental health awareness. And being Mental Health Awareness Month, we are honored to have him on to chat about mental health. When I was thinking about this interview, I was just reflecting on myself and thinking how I tend to take mental health for granted very often. And how I associate it with my physical well-being. Well, the way to take care of my mental health is just go exercise, which is one way to do it. Mm -hmm. But I've been learning more and more over the years through meditation that it is something that is completely separate as well from my Mm -hmm. physical. But yeah, before we jump into all that, let's hear a little bit about your background. Sean, I'll start from the beginning. I grew up in the uh, burbs of Chicago in a town called Woodridge, Illinois. After graduating high school, I went to Vanderbilt University, where I received my bachelor's and master's. In a sense, I was ahead of my time with that master's degree, having it be focused on organizational leadership. For all the MBAs out there who dreaded organizational behavior as one of the introductory courses, I found myself rather enthralled by it, being a bit nostalgic. After graduating from Vanderbilt, I joined a consultancy called Huron Consulting and had the distinct pleasure of focusing on healthcare first and foremost, and had some great opportunities to go and work in a variety of hospitals, some of which were children's hospitals. So it was really clear in terms of why you were going and doing what it was that you were doing. After leaving consulting, that's when I actually matriculated into Haas as a full-time MBA, as you mentioned. After departing Haas, I joined Chevron, a super major oil and gas firm through what was then referred to as a commercial skills development program and moved from Berkeley, California to Houston, Texas, shortly thereafter to a place that was completely different, Dhaka, Bangladesh, followed by Moscow, Russia, followed by Jakarta, Indonesia, then Manila, Philippines, ultimately back to uh, the US where I was living in New Orleans for a couple of years and then bounced over to uh, Singapore and finally came back to the, the US to go and join uh, Google in their data centers department. So it's uh, been a whirlwind. Over that journey, I had the opportunity to go and get married and have a kiddo. So uh, a lot of things happening all over the world. Where are you based now? (laughs) I am officially based in New York City. Of course, this has been a unique year for a lot of folks, yours truly and my family being one in some of them. So we found ourselves living a large part of the year outside of New York City in a variety of locations. But ultimately, when we get back to this new normal, New York City, once again, will be our full-time home. I was. Uh, I'm married to uh, a Bulgarian, and we uh, were in uh, Bulgaria for about two months there. We had the good fortune of spending some time in the mountains, as well as Sofia, where my wife's from. You know, and it's important to us to go and make sure that we keep that grounding and connection for her. I think sometimes we can become American-centric living in the States. And I think I need to go and be mindful of that. And one of the best ways to go and do that is obviously by uh, taking a step out of the uh, borders of the country and visiting this home 
of my wife that she is uh, really, really proud of. I want to talk a little bit about what you've done at Haas, your initiatives at Haas, having Google sponsor the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Challenge hosted by UC Berkeley, Haas School of Business, our healthcare association. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of the origin story of healthcare and mental health awareness in your life. It's kind of grounded, I guess, in an inflection point in my life that in not so many words was tragic. My wife and I got married in Bulgaria in July of 2013. And we had a great deal of friends and family that joined us. Amongst those folks were uh, quite a few Hossies. It was a really wonderful experience. Our parents, both my wife's and my parents, along with a few friends of theirs and relatives, decided to head down to Greece. And as they were coming back from Greece to Bulgaria, the vehicle that they were traveling in was struck by a truck. And my father died instantaneously. And my wife's father succumbed to his injuries a few days after that. So the whirlwind of emotions was something I was completely unprepared for. I don't think anybody is truly prepared for that. And I knew that I needed to go and do something with this that was positive. Because if I didn't, it was going to go and be the demise of my marriage. And it was going to go and be the demise of me as an individual. And I think my want to go and create something positive out of this above and beyond the reasons that I just shared was that I wanted to go and lead by example. I've always been one to go and take on that role out of a sense of duty and a sense of joy. And this was no different. And as I was reflecting on how to go and make meaning of this tragic event, I reflected on my dad's life. My dad was the son of two World War II veterans, grew up in middle-class household. His dad was a factory worker. His mom was a stay-at-home mother. He also lived in a house where there was alcoholism present. His father was an alcoholic. My grandfather's father was an alcoholic and so on and so on. And my dad succumbed to alcoholism as well, which he was predisposed to. For many years, he was in the throes of it. But towards the last 10 or 20 years of his life, he found sobriety. And as he was going through that journey, our relationship started to improve. And we started to go and have a lot of wonderful conversations. And one of the things he said to me once, kind of passively, but with great intent was, you and your friends are so talented. Can you go and do more with those talents? And the topic that we were talking about was mental health because part of his recovery was actually going back to school and getting his degree in psychology so that he could become an addiction counselor. And what was so interesting about that portion of his journey, Sean, was that that pain that he experienced being the son of an alcoholic, being an alcoholic, being a veteran of the Vietnam War, was that suddenly he was in really high demand. And that's because we had a lot of veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that were in the throes of addiction and dealing with a lot of mental health issues. So suddenly this pain that he had carried with him became a treasure, kind of a way for him to go and unlock the hearts and minds of these folk that were in great need of mm -hmm. his experience and the service that he could go and provide. So in thinking about that, it was very clear then we need to go and create a fellowship in his name to go and honor his passion. And that fellowship was created in 2014 and it really focused on going and giving 
graduate students, be they in the School of Social Welfare, Public Health, or Haas, some funds to go and pursue an internship during one of their summers that would focus on either improving the quality of or access to mental health care. It just so happened that in 2020, my family and I had gone to talking and I said, how can we go and do more with this? And then all of a sudden, COVID strikes. And it became very clear that there were a lot of mental health issues that mm. folks were dealing with. And we needed to go and scale up the number of people that were working on this. So that's when I reached out to folks at Haas and folks at Google and ultimately brought them together to go and host and sponsor the inaugural Johnny Martin Mental Health Care Challenge in 2020. And apparently some folks thought it went pretty well, such that we uh, received the good news that Google is going to be sponsoring it again in 2021. That's amazing. I think that is an amazing legacy and initiative. I appreciate that. that. You're creating. And you're absolutely right. I mean, COVID has definitely brought to light the amount of issues that isolation brings about. And honestly, for me, I've just been so isolated (laughs) with my family group here. And I think you and I were in some ways very fortunate to have newborns right at the onset of COVID. Correct. Because A, it gave us something to do, right? And keep us busy. Certainly a lot of diaper changing (laughs) and other things along the way. Yeah. And B, we didn't have to worry about our kids not being in school. Yes. That's one of the most unfortunate things I think that's coming out of COVID is the mental health impact on the kids. The thing about that, in my opinion, Sean, that's something that we have to go and be aware of is not only what's happening in the here and now, but the ripple effects Hmm. that will be seen for years to come. And I think that's one of those things that is really helpful when thinking about mental health as well. Unlike certain physical issues where you go in for a surgery and the issue is addressed and you're good to go thereafter, I think with mental health care, it's this constant journey and you're going through this helix. And sometimes it looks like you're going up and sometimes it looks like you're going down and trusting that you're proceeding forward in the right direction is really one of the things that's so key to your ultimate success. But having that awareness, I think, can be difficult at times. (laughs) Yeah, There's a lot of stimulus out there where it's starting to be rather easy for you to go and doubt yourself. It can be described as first world problems, but there's certainly a lot of self-doubt that I saw when I was a student at Haas. And I speak about that from my personal experience as well as those of my peers. And I think that is one of those things that continues to go and be the case. In a sense, perhaps in this modern day and age, it's part of being human. Talk a little bit about the lack of research between mental health care and productivity. During the first challenge that I referenced, we had the good fortune of having former FDA commissioner speak, Dr. Rob Kalf. And he made this observation that was so simple and so profound. He goes, mental health care is 30 years behind physical health care. The problem is you can't separate the two. What we know is that it's very clear that there's an issue. All that COVID did in many ways was put a magnifying lens on it to go and make it that much more clear. And what we know is that we're all going to be impacted by it, either directly or indirectly. It's not a question of if, 
It's a question of when. The stats are the stats. And in those moments when one does not have access to appropriate, culturally competent resources in a timely manner, things have the ability to grow exponentially worse. And that is really when you start to go and see productivity in the workplace when we're speaking about it from the professional realm. And a lot of perhaps more nefarious things on the home front if we're thinking about it from the personal perspective. So one of the things that is definitely lacking right now, the clear articulation in a quantifiable way of the business case to go and invest in this. A lot of it's anecdotal. That's great that we're there because if you think about it, 10, 20 years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. But the need to actually go and have some of the great economists of the day, the great researchers of the day, actually make this their discipline they focus on is something that gets me excited. You had mentioned to me that the tech challenge showed how similar we are to one another, that just this idea that we all know, instinctively know that we are more similar than we are different. I'm curious to hear a little bit about that. (laughs) Yeah, something that probably was one of my favorite things about the tech challenge. And I'd just say like in life generally. So just taking a step back, if we think about Haas, we think about Berkeley more largely, there are certainly stereotypes associated with the institutions. And then if I go and I think about somebody in middle America living in a rural area, there are certainly stereotypes that we would associate with those folks. And leaving Berkeley to go and join Chevron, it was an amazing experience because being out there offshore with folks that certainly did not have the educational achievements that I had, but in many ways were so much smarter than me, it was one of the greatest educational experiences I could have ever asked for. And the thing that made it an educational experience was my willingness to go and learn from them and to go and have them have a willingness to go and learn from me and to go and do that over the dining room table every night, breaking bread, having dinner together, having conversation really helped amplify its effect and impact. So during the tech challenge, the community that we were really focusing on were construction workers because it might come as a surprise, but Google is dependent on infrastructure, big infrastructure, these things called data centers that are the size of football stadiums. And in order to go and build those, you need a lot of construction workers. They didn't go to the best schools. Heck, they may not have gone to any school, but they're really good at what they do. And unfortunately, they experience a rate of suicide on a per capita basis that is second only to those in the extractive industry. So in my career, I've had the opportunity to go and work for folks that are regrettably number one in that order in terms of oil and gas being in the extractive industry, and then number two in that order being in the construction industry. So focusing on this group in the tech challenge was really important to me. And bringing those folks to the table to go and speak with the students that were going to be generating ideas was important to me because also often we make a lot of assumptions. And assumptions can be imperfect and sometimes just outright wrong. And in doing this, what I found was both sides, the students that were pursuing these amazing degrees and these construction workers that had these amazing life experiences developed a respect for one another. Hmm. And in these vitriolic times where you have cable news just pitting one side versus the other, that was a mental health moment for me in terms of just taking down the temperature and going and seeing these two groups of individuals that may have thought they had nothing in common 
actually going and finding a way to go and be helpful to one another, to go and develop something bigger. It really goes back to those Haas defining principles. They were going beyond themselves. Right. And they were being students always. I thought it was just a lovely experience. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about this dichotomy? Curious to see how these students came up with some solutions in conjunction with the construction workers. Do you have any examples for us? I do. First off, what we did is we assigned each group a mentor that had a decade, two decades plus of experience in the construction industry. And the teams that were most successful were the teams that asked a lot of questions and did a lot of listening. So that was the first thing. Then the next thing was the teams that actually brought their own experience with mental health and that of their family members to the table were a level up from there. And the team that won the competition, the team name was Clicks. I'm not quite sure how they came up with that name, but it was four individuals, some of whom were coming from outside the US, some of whom were coming from the US. One of them was a uh, veteran in the military. Others were working on Foxconn projects or Foxconn-like projects. Yeah, And they all had experienced some pain in their lives, directly or indirectly associated with mental health care. And when they started actually thinking about developing these solutions, the solutions were respectful of the individual. And I thought that that was a really amazing thing because in doing that, they were a lot more effective in terms of developing something that was compelling to the judges. Mm -hmm. This was a competitive challenge after all. (laughs) And something that people said, I'd like to go and invest my time in further. And I'd like to go and invest my money in. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really exciting. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about having been leading this challenge and obviously reading up in this space. What are some stigmas that you've seen around mental health, at least in this country and in our culture, American culture? Fair point, because I think that's what I could probably speak to the best. The first thing I'd like to go and say is, I think things are getting better. And I think that's because people are more comfortable sharing that which is their full self. And I bring this up because I think a lot of times, I personally am concerned with what I see in social media, where that which is presented is seemingly one's best life, perfect life, and probably has in many ways nothing to go and do with the majority of that individual's life. Yeah. At the same time, I'm seeing some really encouraging things where, Sean, for the longest time, I was embarrassed because of what was happening at my home. I had a dad who was an alcoholic, a dad that was arrested because of his addiction. And I thought that was an indictment on me as an individual. And the most empowering thing that I think ever happened to me was I shared this with a professor of mine, my freshman year at Vanderbilt. She was teaching a class called The Good Life, and it was focused on learning from the classics. Yeah. And she wrote me this really simple note. (laughs) It's kind of like goodwill hunting. But this note just said on it, it's okay. She just gave me a hug. And that was the perfect way to go and encourage me to go and share my story with others. Yeah. She didn't need to say anything that was uber eloquent. She just listened. She said two words, it's okay, and a hug. And that energized me to go and commit to going and sharing my story with others. I think the stigmas still are its weakness, that my family's memory issue is an indictment on me, that if I share this information, it's going to go and be a detriment to me, both as a person and a profession. I'm tainted in a sense. 
really excited to go and see what's happening with folks that are a lot younger than me. And I, I think I get to go and say that now, having just turned 40, <laughs> that there's a fluency with which they actually speak about these issues, which I think sometimes rubs people the wrong way, but also I think needs to go and be celebrated because the faster that we go and identify that there are issues, the faster I think we're going to come up with effective solutions. And it's a bit of like that first step in the 12-step program where you're going and saying, you know, I'm admitting that I'm no longer in control of this. I know that doesn't exactly go and speak to that, but I certainly think so as not to go and admit that is something that our younger generations have a much easier time doing. And I'm really appreciative of that in a strange kind of way. I think they're actually teaching folks that are much more senior the power that you can go and have by going and sharing that part of your story. Yeah. And when you brought up the whole social media thing, you know, I've been reading a lot lately on the space, naturally being in podcasting, this whole idea that as an economy, we are starting to shift from the attention economy, which is based on presenting that good life, but also trying to sell that good life because the way that Instagram and social media is designed is that it's free. It's mm-hmm. free to us financially, but there is always a cost and that cost is our attention. Right. And so it's, it's been this nonstop attention grab between companies. And so because the creators on Instagram don't have really any other ways to monetize, at least not in the past decade since they've been doing the social media influencer thing, that they are forced to over-accentuate their lives so that they can sell something. And it's, it's a very interesting paradigm. And so the paradigm shift now is, well, people realize, well, really, yeah, it's free. They have to overhype everything and oversell everything so they can make money and they make money with ads. Mm-hmm. How do we shift from that model to going back? People are saying, oh, we're shifting from the attention economy to the value economy. I'm thinking, well, we're just going back to the value-based economy. That's what <laughs> things used to be. You voted with your dollars. You pay for something. Yeah, yeah, not because you were told to buy something that you were oversold, that you really need this thing to make your life complete, but you actually received tangible value from it that you feel internally. What I'm trying to get at is I just think it's a very interesting shift too that we're going to start to see kind of in this internet 3.0 now (laughs) we're going to move into. I think it's really easy to go and say like, things are binary, right? I'm guilty of it. Yeah. All bad, all good. And we live in this world of gray. And I think acknowledging that is important. For me personally, I knew that being on Facebook was something that was not good for my mental health. Mm -hmm. That's not an indictment on that company. I'm just going and saying, I asked myself, what's in my sphere of influence? Yeah, And I knew that I would be better positioned to go and be the best version of myself, which I try to go and achieve each and every day by not having that in my life. Yeah, I know other folks who really don't see a deleterious impact to their mental health or physical health by using Facebook, mm-hmm. the good and bad of it. So I bring this up because I think part of what we need to go and be mindful of is that which is in our control. Sean, you and I were talking about this idea of responsibility and it's the ability to you know go and control your responses at the most basic of levels. And all of these things are occurring in sequence 
So when I started to go and think about it from a root cause perspective, in terms of my mental health, for me, the answer was, don't use this. For other people doing that root cause analysis, the answer might be different. But just simply having the tools to go and take that pause and go and ask oneself, that I think is something that's really powerful. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm actually appreciative of the support that I got along the way to go and have the opportunity to go and ask that question and have that time to go and reflect. Absolutely. Having the awareness of your vices in many ways. I'm similarly, I don't know when I weaned off of Facebook 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. but Instagram, I made a very conscious decision two years ago, I think almost two years ago now. It was an experiment. I said, what if I just took a one-year break? And that's what I called it. And the one-year break has turned into a two-year break. Mm -hmm. And are there things that I miss from it, that I lack from it? Absolutely. There are certain friends that I know I can keep up with easier because that's the way they share their life. I can keep up with them easily through Instagram or social media. But I also realized I could just message them. (laughs) I could just email them or call them and ask them what's going on. And at first it's awkward because they're saying, well, just (laughs) just look at my Instagram. You know, you can catch up in a moment. But I said, yeah, I don't want to look at your Instagram. Just tell me what's going on. Let's just have a conversation. Let's just talk. On that note, (laughs) what's so funny about it is like the thought that's going through my mind. Sean is like how like the big craze during COVID was like, I'm going to learn how to go and bake bread. Yeah. You could probably go to the store and buy better bread than what you could go and make. I know that would certainly be the case for me, but there was a joy in terms of like the effort that you need to go and put in to go and get this product. During 2020, I made a promise to myself. I was going to go and write a handwritten letter to a different person offering my gratitude every single week. And I did. Wow. I say it jokingly in terms of this way, like when somebody goes and gets that handwritten letter, they call immediately and they're like, is everything okay? There has to be something wrong. Nobody does this anymore. (laughs) So I'm like, great mission accomplished. You know what? I got that response. I got that connection. But you know, all jokes aside, I enjoyed the journey. I enjoyed the process. Yeah, I enjoyed not having the ability to go and quickly go and delete what I just typed and having to go and think a little bit about going into writing that letter. Mm Mm-hmm what it was that was front of mind for me. Why was I interested in connecting with that person? And it had a whole slew of other positive things. And I know a lot of people hearing this could probably just go and say, oh, hokum. The reason why social media, email, text messaging is so great is because it's so efficient. And I don't disagree with any of those comments. But I think there's something to go and be said about having this balance Mm -hmm. in your life. And the reason why I don't do the Facebook thing, never did the Instagram thing is because I realized I couldn't have that balance. Same. So for me, it was pretty easy then to go and say, okay, great. And it reminded me in a sense of what I learned from my dad. My dad wasn't going to go and pick up that drink because he knew that he didn't have the ability as much as he would have liked to, to go and say only one. No, it was going to go and turn into a lot more than that. And I think I bring this up because it's just one more way that I try to go and make sense of a very uncomfortable time in my life in terms of going and saying, yes, but what were the things that I learned? And I think that kind of goes back to these defining principles too, in terms of student always. Bad stuff happens, but what did it teach me? Right. What meaning am I making out of it? Yeah, absolutely. This is really fascinating. I mean, makes me wonder what, and this might 
age the both of us, but makes you wonder what tools and methods and habits, what are some healthy habits that we have learned along the way to really create that balance of in terms of Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. I think that's the balance that everybody needs. We can't consume everything in 10, 15 seconds, <laughs> bites. And this is something that I've been thinking very deeply about the past couple of years. But I'm really curious to hear what are some habits and tips or tricks that you have for maintaining self-awareness, maintaining a healthy balance? To me, it's starting the day out the same way each and every morning, regardless of what I have ahead of me, where I am in the world. And that is through doing some breath work. I find it both invigorating in terms of it wakes me up and it also provides clarity for me mentally. It Mm. kind of takes the fog away. And I take some time just to go and reflect in terms of what was good about yesterday and what I have this day ahead and what I'm excited about. I found when I was struggling the most with mental health, I got out of those routines. That was detrimental. And it's not one of those things where I'm spending hours doing this. It's just a couple minutes, but that's a big tip for me. I think the other thing is since I've had the pleasure of becoming a dad, each and every morning I uh, chat with, but really I'm chatting to (laughs) my my daughter and we talk about her principles. I'm hoping that these sink in for her via osmosis (laughs) because really I'm hoping that they sink in for me via osmosis. And we've got six of them and we're student always because I think you start dying when you stop learning. 100%. Yes. <laughs> and then our next one is give respect, get respect. It's a two-way street, regardless of who it is in the world. The most poison I've ever taken in my life mm-hmm. is when I've held on to that animosity. Yes. And that's a struggle for me. That's one of those things that I think about regularly in terms of the real power to choose for me. And this is changing the lens is to be able to let it go, Yeah. to forgive. Easily said, difficult to do. Mm-hmm. but something I'm committed to. The fourth principle is to focus on that, which brings us joy. And I don't mean that we should be joyous all the time. That's not what I'm trying to go and tell her, but to go and understand that sometimes it takes work to ultimately go and arrive to that point of joy. Mm-hmm. And accordingly, that joy, I should say, makes it worth it. Time's more valuable than money is the fifth. And boy, is that an important one because I've wasted a lot of time in my life. And the last one is control what's in your sphere of influence. And I feel like if I could have understood this stuff when I was a a little kid, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would have been really precocious and I would have been a lot better off. But it's my little gift that I like to go and give her and myself every day. And that to me is uh, something that is simple, profound, and hopefully impactful to the two of us. I think that's a wonderful gift. I resonate with every single one of those. (laughs) I think it's how I stay sane. Right. On every one of those dimensions, it's a daily practice. Exactly. These foundational principles. I notice when things go out of balance, it's when I am not paying respect to one of these principles. Exactly. And practicing them, especially the controlling what's in your sphere of influence. The last one, especially in these crazy days. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's, It's so critical. And all these things also, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think they also enable thought. They enable critical thinking. I like about him too, Sean, is this. It's not that I'm waiting for the next bad thing to happen because I was at a certain point in time in life. Mm. When I was growing up in the household that I was, like it wasn't a question of if dad was going to come home drunk. Yeah, It was a question of when and how bad was it going to go and be. And that can really go and mess with people, myself included. But 
in terms of like control what's in your sphere of influence, I share with you, hey, something that I wish on no one for your father and father-in-law to go and just suddenly go away Yeah, in a physical and manifest way. But what was in my sphere of influence was making meaning of it by creating this fellowship that's going to go and support folks in doing some fantastic things. I acknowledge the fact that I'm in a gifted and privileged position to be able to go and achieve what I was able to coming out of that. So I, I don't want to go and be remiss by not saying that, but it's really empowering to go and have an awareness to go and say that I can go and control my attitude or work on controlling my attitude. And I bring this up too, because I think sometimes as it relates to mental health, that's easier said than done. But by having access to the right tools, and gosh, I sure hope that more and more folks get access to them. It helps you have an increased ability to go and do that. Personally, I'll share my tools <laughs> for that'd be great for maintaining my mental health. I definitely agree with the breath work. It's something that when I was thinking about meditation, that's just deliberate time for breath work, <laughs> in my opinion. And once I practice meditation enough, I notice that I can meditate anywhere. I can meditate mm -hmm. while I'm driving. Not the same type of meditation, but I can practice sure. my breath work. Not as intensely either. I should clarify so I don't pass <laughs> out while driving. But you can practice breath work and just be intentional about your breath anywhere. Yes. Just about. And it doesn't have to be five minutes, 30 minutes. It can just be two minutes. And it's just a quick reset. And so I definitely resonate with that. The other thing is writing. Yeah. Is just writing. There's just so much power to writing, especially writing negative emotions. And this is something that is scary at times because you're documenting it somewhere. What if somebody finds it? Yes. <laughs> it's, but I think it's a very healthy practice to just write down my negative feelings. And this, is, this happens once in a while where I'll just wake up and I'll, I just won't be in the mood for anything. I'll just write that down. You know, I don't feel yeah. like I'm in the mood for anything today. And then usually at the end of the day, when I do my end of the day journal before bed, I'll find those are the most productive days because yeah. I just got the negative emotion out of the way. I acknowledged it and it just disappeared. I think there's a lot of power in terms of that because I don't know if you think of it this way, but I think about it in terms of the sense like I've got a lot of voices in my head. I don't mean that in a schizophrenic sense. Yes. There's a little kid inside me and there are some other types of me inside me. Yeah. And by writing things down, I feel like it gives them a chance to go and have their voice documented mm -hmm. and in a sense be listened to. And I think one of the things like we always kind of strive for is we just want to go and be heard. And it's a really empowering thing. And it's a real great way of loving oneself, not in a narcissistic way, but in terms of showing compassion mm -hmm. to all those facets of you. And it goes along the way of this idea of striving for perfect. I think a lot of business school students in particular <laughs> being tight days, overachievers, so on and so forth, yeah. have experienced perfection at many points of times throughout their life. Yeah. And at those times that they don't, there can be a lot of self-flagellation. And by writing it down and finding out that you are not your mistakes, nor are you your successes, you are so much more in terms of nuance. Absolutely cliched, but something that has seemed to go and be uh, true for me. I think that's a great note to end this episode on is that idea that to love others, right? There's that saying, to love others, you must first love yourself. Mm -hmm. And this is a great reminder for Mental Health Awareness Month that to be able to be present for your loved ones, for the people that you care about, 
you need to take care of yourself first. Yes. It's not selfish. It's just a reality. Exactly. <laughs> right? If your house is burning down, you can't save anybody else's house. <laughs> right. If you're on that plane and the face mask drop, you're yeah. going to put your face mask on and then you're going to go and help those around you. Exactly. Otherwise, it's going to be terminal. Yeah. Thank you, Michael, for taking the time to hang out with us on the podcast. This has been a real pleasure talking to you and learning about the initiatives that you have brought to Haas as just just going to remind everyone to please, especially students and alumni who want to support this cause, please check out the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Challenge that is hosted by our very own Haas School of Business Healthcare Association. It'll be happening this fall, right? That's correct. It'll be happening this fall. There's going to be a lot of events that are occurring in conjunction with it in terms of speakers and roundtables. So a lot of ways to go and get involved. And we will be um, continuing to go and publish more updates leading up to the event itself. What's a great way for our listeners to find out more? You can go to the Haas Healthcare Association website. There is a section of that website specifically dedicated to the challenge. And that's where we will go and be posting all information on that. And we will also go and make an effort to go and publish this in all the various electronic and terrestrial platforms Haas School of Business offers in terms of staying in touch, as well as LinkedIn and other sorts of connection tools like that. Absolutely. We'll be sure to include those links in the description and share that with everyone. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, John. Stay safe, so well. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org, that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears.